think it's a good theme song for the Lenten season, don't you think? Lead us to the cross. It's kind of a countercultural idea, actually. Who wants to carry a cross? Who wants to go to the cross? Nobody. The cross is a place of death. It's place of sacrifice, and that's not how we're wired, actually, and so we tend to want to avoid the cross, and so we come every year in the Christian calendar, we come to this season where we come out of epiphany, and, and this idea that God is light, and his light is shining in the world, it's coming out of the Advent season of, of Christ coming to us, to now we're going to walk this road to Calvary, to the cross. So, we have kids with us, some teenagers. Um, you know, one of the ways that we talk about Lent is giving up something, fasting, right? Do we have any young people that are fasting anything? Raise your hands. Nope. All right, I got I, a <laughs> quick one. What if we considered fasting video games? Ooh. <laughs> Sam's like, no way. I know I'm, I'm talking crazy talk right now. I'm not behind the pulpit, so it's okay. What if we considered fasting social media? What if we considered fasting something that we really like to eat? Like maybe chocolate, right? This, is, this applies to all of us in here, by the way. But here's the interesting thing that, that you might not know, young people. So we could talk about the Lenten season as being the 40 days that lead up to the cross. So we might give up some things in our lives that we feel like, you know what, this is trapping us. It's not really what God wants me to do, so I'm going to fast that. Did you know that each and every Sunday for the next six weeks, including this one, is a mini Easter? So your fast doesn't apply to a Sunday. Now, you're not supposed to go crazy on Sunday, but we're not meant to fast on a Sunday. Did you know that? This is a day of celebration, that God is with us, and we are his people, and we're worshiping his good name. We have started worship with that he is a good God. Amen? And he has created this good earth for us. Genesis reminds us that creation is good. And so today we come in, even though it is the Lenten season, and we're going to talk about a sobering passage of Scripture in the back of our mind today is that we are people of hope and people of celebration, okay? And then Monday morning's going to come, and we're going to get back into our fasting. And we're going to ask God to meet us this week. Last week we were together, and we were taken to this high and holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where, where Christ was taken up, walks up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples, and he is transfigured before us. And that's a fancy word to say that he looks like the sun, is what the text tells us. His clothes are gleaming white. He's radiant. In other words, we get a little bit of a vision of who Christ really is in his heavenly glory. It is a good reminder, a powerful reminder to us, I think, that yes, Jesus loves us. And yes, Jesus has come near to us, but he's holy. In my Sunday school class, 
uh, this morning, our small group time. Uh, and if you're not participating in a small group, I really encourage you to do it during this Lenten season. It's, it's just a good way to, to wrestle with our faith, to get to know people. And if you want to become a member of Calvary or interested in what it means to even become a member of this congregation, then I encourage you to participate in my classes. We're looking at articles of the faith. We started with the Trinity, with God. And we talked and wrestled with this idea that in the article of faith that the Church of the Nazarene has are these two words connected to each other, holy love. That God is holy other. He's greater than us. We can't even begin to imagine how great and awesome our God is. But God doesn't terrorize us with his holiness. Thanks be to God. He could do that, but he doesn't, does he? Because the Mount Mount of Transfiguration reminded us that God is holy. Oh, he shines like the sun, but then he walks down the mountain looking like an ordinary man so that you and I can actually participate in a true relationship with God. Paul says it this way, Christ being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage grasped and held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, us humans. Because God was willing to stoop to our level, we can participate with God in an actual relationship. In other words, you and I don't have to live in fear of a holy God, as if we're slaves because we might fear death. No, actually, this holy God is inviting us because he is also holy love. He's inviting us into a real relationship with him. And this is good news for us. Amen? So that was a summary of last week if you weren't here. We better get to this week. There's a problem. I'm going to move this. And Josh, you better be on your toes, my friend. Oh, he's not back there. So I guess I'm going to not be on the live stream. <laughs> Come over here. <laughs> uh, there's a problem. I don't know if you knew this or not. It's, it's amazing that God is holy, that God is holy love. He's come to us. He's met us where we are. But there's still the problem of sin. What are we to do about sin? We can't just wish it away, can we? We can't pretend that sin is nothing short of an act of rebellion. It is. I mean, by definition, that's what it is. So what's to be done? On this first Sunday of Lent, I think this is probably a pretty good question for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? We've seen how holy Christ is. He's walked down the mountain into our reality with us. But what's the answer? What's the antidote for sin? Well, we live in a time and a culture where it seems to me we can resolve a lot of our problems by just Googling it. (laughs) Go online and watch a video. And you can actually learn a lot of things, can't you? You can learn how to change an alternator in a car that you've never done that before. How to build a deck, never done that before. How to espalier a fruit tree. First you have to Google, what is espalier? (laughs) I had to do that. It's where you prune your tree so it can go along a fence line or along cables or over an arbor. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, my wife asked me to do this, so I had to Google it to figure it out. I don't know. How do you do it? I don't know. I didn't even know such a thing existed. 
So these are all things that I've done in the last few years. Changed the alternator, built a deck, espaliered some fruit trees. The fact is we have so much information at hand and uh, so many resources in this country in particular that we really do kind of have this ethos, this, this kind of cultural context that we kind of feel like, well, we might be able to resolve a lot of problems. We can figure it out. But I wonder how's that going for the problem of sin for us? Can we just Google it? <laughs> Will that solve it for us? Can you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, grit your teeth, and work really hard and fix the problem of sin for yourself? No. Let me answer the question for you. No, you can't. You can't do it. It's a waste of time. You can't fix the problem. In fact, a great deal of harm has happened in the Christian church when we present it as though you can get yourself clean. And church, you're here this morning, so I can say this to you. We don't ever want to say that to anybody that visits our church. They don't clean themselves up first and then step into this space, do they? No, they can't. We need to remember that. We can't actually deal with the problem of sin by ourselves. We are not capable of it. Which is discouraging news, isn't it? And it's very not American mindset because everything in our culture kind of sa says that we can do it. Just work hard. Get enough information. We can do this. But friends, we can't do this. But God can. <laughs> our devotional guide which I left on the front pew, is uh, Water for the Way. And if you haven't picked it up yet, I encourage you to pick it up on the way out. Some of our small groups are using this in their class time in the morning, and if you're not participating, you can do this on your own. But in it, this, today's reflection was on Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where Adam and Eve submit to temptation. It's really a discouraging passage, but it's really deep. In just a few verses, we see original righteousness presented to us. What is original righteousness? Seems very fancy, right? Well, what is it? Well, it's right relationship with God. It's right relationship with one another. It's right re relationship with all of creation. And friends, it is even right relationship with ourselves. Original righteousness. The way that God created, he stepped back and he said, this is good is with this fourfold righteousness of relationships. Us to God, us to one another, us to the greater creation, us to ourselves. All of this was supposed to be agape love, God-like love. And of course, if you know the story at all, it's distorted by one act of disobedience, isn't it? All of these relationships that are identified in the first few chapters of Genesis are marred by sin, distorted are affected by sin. So original righteousness is then replaced with original sin. But what does God do in response to this most heinous of acts? You understand this, right? God speaks forth creation. He declares it good. God does not lie. He cannot lie. It is, sin does not exist. It only exists in the moment that Adam and Eve choose to disobey. And then sin, suddenly sin happens. This is a most heinous of acts. 
And he comes, and what does the holy God of creation come doing? Does he come with statements of condemnation? He doesn't. Go back and look at the text. He comes with questions. He questions Adam. And then he questions Eve. And what is the purpose of a question? It is to call for a response, isn't it? It's to invite us to participate in this conversation. God, the Holy One, comes. In the presence of sin, he comes and he invites questions. Friends, he's trying to rehabilitate this relationship that's breaking. And it's not just the questioning. There's also this very curious verse. Verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it says this, The Lord God, and if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3, 21, you might see that the Lord is in small caps. And I don't know, we have some young people in here right now, so I just want to make sure that everybody is aware of this. Whenever you see that in your Bible, where Lord is in small caps, that is a signifier to us that in the Hebrew, it's actually the yod Hey vah Hey, the four letters that make up Yahweh, God's personal name, the one he reveals to Moses at the burning bush, I am Every time you see that in your Bible, that's telling you that that is the personal name of God. And the reason that you see Lord in small caps is because Judaism doesn't want to speak the name of God. It's too sacred. They don't even want to write it. And so this is a way for us to identify. Oh, friends, this is the holy God that has come down. So sacred is he. So sacred is his name. We're not actually going to voice it out loud. But this Lord God shows up, and what does he do in verse 21? He makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothes them. Do we remember this verse? It's a strange verse. Because the first death that recorded scripture has for us is God killing an animal to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Which might suggest to us two things, at least, that sin always costs. We can be forgiven of it, can't we? But it costs. It costs an animal its life in this text. And two, and most importantly, God has always, from the very beginning, wanted to end humanity's shame. He doesn't want us to live in shame. Do you believe that, church? All right. Well, that was all just a pre-sermon, so now we're going to actually start. (laughs) I'm getting some side-eyes out of the front row here. Okay. I'm just kidding. We're halfway through. It's all right. It was a long introduction. I felt like I needed to do that. But our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 4. And it does, the reason I took you to Genesis is because I'm going to sort of go back and forth between Adam and Eve. So if you're not familiar with the Adam and Eve story, uh, go to the beginning of your Bible sometime this week. And Genesis, um, particularly chapters 2 and 3, will kind of fill you in on that story. But. Our text this morning that's assigned to us comes from Matthew chapter 4, and it says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 
by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So last week we saw Christ in his glory, and this week, because the lectionary has taken two different passages in, in Matthew because of the ending of one season of the Christian calendar and the start of another, we find ourselves in, in two places that are very different from each other, and there's an interesting thing that happens. Last week we saw Christ in his glory, his divinity in a sense, and this week we see Jesus suffering in his humanity. God has sent to us Christ, the Son, who is both fully God and fully human. And we see it represented here in these two passages that we're studying in back-to-back weeks. Here is Christ in human form. Here he is walking this earth, not just appearing as human, but actually human. And in case you didn't know, he really does suffer. He's hungry in this text. He's fatigued. He's going to be faced with some tough choices. And none of this means anything to us if it isn't actually real. If it's all just a show or a game. No, it only means something to us if it's real. And if it's real, then it means everything to you and I. Because it means to us that the one that we testify is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is also the one that can identify, empathize, as the author of Hebrews says, with our weaknesses. In other words, he has walked where we have walked, but he has not sinned, the text in Hebrews tells us. We have an advocate, one who can identify with us. So we can't fix the sin problem. You and I are not capable of it. We can't do it. Young people, don't waste your time trying to fix yourselves. It can't be done. But guess what? We've been given one who can help us. He can, in a sense, heal us. And friends, I want you to understand this, and I feel really passionate about this. All too often when we talk about the healing from sin or, or God's answers, answer to sin, we talk about just the cross. And the cross, of course, is an important part of the healing process. The important part of us receiving salvation, there's no denying that. I wouldn't want to deny that. That absolutely is true. But friends, we miss out if we only focus on the cross because we are given all the way through the Gospels the life of Jesus Christ. And his life should mean something to us, don't you think? It's not just the cross. He didn't come just to die. He came to live and to redeem our humanity, 
to offer back to us a different version of what it means to be male and female in this world, to live as a child of God created in his image. He's giving us back a vision of humanity that is radically different. And I think that's exactly what's happening in uh, the temptations. I'm going to just point out there's lots of ways that we could preach these, and I've preached them various ways. Um, There's so much depth here, and and we could wrestle with it in a lot of ways. So this is just scratching the surface. But I'm going to give you three windows to consider how Jesus is offering us in this passage, way before the cross, he's offering us a vision of what we can be as humans. First, we are given a way of orienting our appetites. Verses 3 and 4. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, we are not robots. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) You weren't created for one thing to be repeated over and over and over. You're not a robot. And neither are you a single-celled organism that does without thinking. No, in fact, friends, you are an amazing creation of God. A complex creature that Scripture tells us in many ways reflects God. God is creative. Guess what? So are humans, all creative. Our young ones in here coloring right now. Creativity exploding all around us. And it's not just young people, it's adults as well. We're creative in various ways. We have appetites. We have desires. We as humans have wants. We yearn for things. This in itself is not sinful, by the way, because when God created us, he created us to want to do this. He created us to be explorers, to be wanderers, to ask questions, to not just sit. We want to move. We want to learn. We want to grow. This is part of who we are, and it's good. We've been created with wants and desires, appetites, but friends, sin has entered the picture, and so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our appetites, our desires, our wants have been marred by sin, right? We know this. I don't think I should have to convince you of this. And when our appetites... Our desires, our wants are marred by sin, then something tragic really happens in us. No longer are we in control of what we want. No longer do we have control over it. It begins to consume us. It begins to control us. We are owned by our appetites. We see this all the time in our culture, don't we? Where people cannot control themselves. And it's not just others out there. It's you and I. Our appetites can get the best of us. We begin wanting and and chasing things, and they consume us, and we're not in control. And here's Jesus having fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, and he surely was hungry. And there's nothing wrong with the feeling of hunger, of course. That's not what the text is trying to tell us. And there's actually nothing wrong with satiating or filling our, our hungry bellies. There's nothing wrong with that either. It's the way that it's going about happening this, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus refuses to do this because, friends, I think this is a le- an important lesson for us. 
a redeemed humanity, a humanity that's given back to us through Jesus Christ, isn't controlled by its appetite anymore. It doesn't mean that we won't be hungry. Of course we will. But I'm talking about the appetites that control us, the wants that we have. Those things are not going to control us anymore. They don't have to control us anymore. That actually Jesus is offering us a a vision of humanity that says we can trust God. That God is the one that can provide for us. That we're going to seek him first before anything else in this world. That I may want lots of things, but I'm not just necessarily going to chase after those wants until I first give them to Jesus. I'm first going to live in obedience in his kingdom. I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these desires, all these wants in my life, all these appetites as I've been calling them, I'm going to hold out loosely in my hand and ask God, which of these should I give my life to? Which of these should I chase after? Which of these are worthy of pursuing Jesus is offering us a vision of humanity that isn't controlled by appetite anymore. Our wants, our desires. That in fact he's offering us a vision of being people that live in obedience to God's kingdom. So let me put this simply for us. I'm not sure that you're tracking with me. Are we tracking? Are you with me? A little head nod might help me out. (laughs) Sometimes we have to preach hard sermons, and it's, it's not, yeah, you don't know how people are taking it. Let me put it simply for us. Our appetites can be sanctified by God, and so become a good for us. A real good for us. But our appetites can also be distorted by the evil one, and they can destroy us. Hmm. We don't want to live in that latter version, do we? So second, we're cautioned against religion as performance. The devil takes Jesus up to the holy city, to the highest point of the temple, tells him to throw himself off, that surely God's angels will protect you. And Jesus answers, it is written, do not put the Lord to to the test. I've been thinking about this one. We as humans like spectacles, don't we? We like grand performances. I'll give you a modern-day example, the Super Bowl. I mean, we can't just play a football game. We have to throw in a whole bunch of other stuff because we like this grand thing, this big spectacle. And in the ancient world, it was no different, friends. They're the same as us. It just happened in the Colosseum. (laughs) A little different variation, but a grand spectacle, right? There's something about us that we like things to be performance and really over-the-top performance. But unfortunately, when our faith becomes a performance, then we stop thinking about what God wants and start focusing on what others want, what others are asking, what we think others need. Religion as performance is destructive. Did you know that? Our praise team up here this morning was not performing for you. And I know that Because you're not the audience. Did you know that? You're not the audience. Who is the audience this morning? Say it, God, right? 
God's the audience of our worship. You are not the audience. They're not performing for you. I'm not performing for you. This is not performance. What we do when we gather in worship is to lift up God's name. We're directing our attention, so we sing with the praise team. Because we want to lift our voices to God because God is our audience of worship, not people. We're not doing this for each other. Bad things happen in religion when we start performing for one another. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he takes him up to this high point. And he says, throw yourself off. And I want to know, why does he say that? Because he wants to know, does Jesus trust God? Is God going to... No, I don't think that's the issue at all. I think the issue is this. Satan wants Jesus to turn religion into a performance, a show. For who? For the people. Because surely they're going to see this man coming off the temple. And oh, the angels are going to come in and save him. Oh, what an amazing spectacle that would be, wouldn't it? Have you noticed in the Gospels how Jesus will not do signs and wonders when it's asked of him? He won't do it. Oh, there are a lot of miracles, but they're never asked for. Jesus doesn't want to offer us a spectacle. Adam and Eve took the fruit because they weren't content to be obedient to God. They wanted more, didn't they? All the trees but one were given to them, and that wasn't enough. We want all of them. They didn't trust that God's way was the best. So the tempter comes along, and he says, i got a show for you. I've got a spectacle for you. You can be like God Almighty. And friends, they ate it up. (laughs) Jesus, unlike the first couple, doesn't consume that vision, though. Because he knows for our lives to be ordered correctly, we need to trust God. We aren't the lords of God. God is the Lord of us. We don't get to cast ourselves down and say, God, fix fix it, help it, do what I ask of you, God. That's not how this works. We are called to live in obedience to God, to trust God. We are not the Lord of God. He's the Lord of us. And so Jesus offers back to us a humanity that's radically different than Adam and Eve. He offers back to us who we're really intended to be, people that trust God. And finally, we're cautioned from taking shortcuts. Takes him up to the highest mountain, says, I'll give it all to you. Which is very ironic. Because Jesus, as Christ, John tells us, was in the beginning with the Father, and through him all things were made. In other words, Satan's trying to give back to Jesus what he already owns, what's already his kind of ironic but there's a temptation here that I don't want you to miss it's the temptation of shortcuts we as as humans I think are often wanting shortcuts take control of all of this without bothering with that whole love thing just take it over take it over by force, take it over in this shortcut that I'm offering you, Jesus. Don't, don't do it the way that you've come. Do it my way. Do it an easier way. John tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us because we as humans needed to be redeemed by the one who made us. We can't fix ourselves again, right? So the only one that can fix us is God Almighty, the one that has created us. So he comes to us. 
He becomes one with us so that we can become one with him. The incarnation offers us a new way to live. A new way for you and me to think about our own humanness. It's not just about getting forgiven, is what I'm saying to you. Are you tracking with me? Oh, forgiveness is great, but guess what? Since Genesis chapter 3, we've been experiencing that. We've been seeking that forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And Christ comes along, and now we're given a window into a new version of humanity that offers us something far greater than just forgiveness. We are offered a new way to understand ourselves. One of the early church fathers actually says this, that it is not until this moment when Jesus comes to us and we see him in human form that we finally as humans understand what we were created to be, what it means to be truly human because Jesus is offering us new humanity. Adam and Eve saw a shortcut to becoming like God, so they ate. And there's no shortcut to holiness, is there? The holy life, as one poet has said, is a long obedience in the same direction. And so Jesus offers back to us a vision of our humanity. It is patterned on worshiping God alone. So here's Jesus, tempted in the wilderness, experiencing temptation like we do, but he doesn't submit to it because he's holy. And he offers to us in this text a way for us to become holy. You can't do it on your own. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't fix the sin problem in your life. But he can. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, he's God Almighty. He's, he's the second person of the Trinity. Of course, he can do that. But how does that help me? And friends, that very one that withstood the temptations of the devil, that reworks the, the, the tragedies of Adam and Eve in that moment and begins to reshape our humanness, guess what? He hasn't left us or forsaken us, has he? He's here with us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He breathes on the disciples in John's gospel and says, that spirit is going to live in us and sanctify us and make us whole. Give us a new vision of who we can be. Church, what do you think? Is it a possibility? Is it worth even maybe trying to see if it's a possibility? I think the season of Lent offers us this great period of time to wrestle with this idea that Christianity isn't just about being forgiven of sins, but it's about being offered a new way to live because of the forgiveness that we're offered. That you can actually be different, and I can actually be different. And young people, you don't have to follow the patterns of the world, but you can be different. Not because you have it all figured out. You don't. Guess what? Join the club but because the Holy Spirit can guide you, change you, transform you. We're going to come to the table. I better make sure that we don't have a song, though. I'm... <laughs> we don't. Okay. It's after communion. Good. <laughs> and a lot in my mind. Uh, I think it's good to come to the table at this point because I need a reminder I mean, I, I preach this sermon. I'm preaching to myself this morning. But I need a reminder 
that I can be different. And the reminder to me is that I take two humble elements, juice and, and bread, and they actually come inside of me. And although it's just symbolic, it is a powerful symbol to me that I'm not on my own. That where I go, Christ wants to go with me. His Holy Spirit can guide me, internally convict me, help me to understand that, no, actually, that's patterned after the old way. Here's the new way, Dustin. Walk this way. And if I'm sensitive and if I am in tune with the Spirit, then I can actually be different, and so can you. Amen? And we need reminders of this, so that's what the table is, is we come this morning. That the one who right now is interceding on our behalf is the one who can identify with us, who has experienced temptation, and he can help us, and we can receive him today. So let's remind ourselves of what we believe before we come to the table. I think we have a creed, don't we? Yep. That's all right. I didn't say the creed statement, so I apologize. All right, why don't you stand with me, and let's recite these words together that are not just words, but a reminder of who our God is, what our faith says, what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'm going to ask that my helpers would come down, and as they're coming, let's pray. God, God, we need you. I know, I know this has been a part of our message this morning that we can't fix ourselves, but God, I, I'm afraid that we just are so habituated to that idea. It's really hard for us. That it's really hard for us to relinquish control, control of our lives, to trust you. just so much easier to try to fix ourselves and, and God we know we've, we've been down that road many of us in here all of us in here can testify that it just doesn't really go well it's still hard and so I pray right now in these moments where we're coming to the end of this worship service God that we're coming to a table to receive grace oh God would you help us to be people that understand that we are saved by grace we are sanctified by grace we are not saved or sanctified because of our good works or because of our good ideas or because of the ways that we try to punish ourselves you're a God 
that is offering new life to us, a new way to be human in this world, in fact, where we're no longer trapped to these things. And so God, in these closing moments where we come to the table, help us, each and every one, from the youngest to the oldest in here, would you help us to be people that come empty-handed, recognizing, oh, we have very little to offer you, but you are offering us everything. You are giving us grace today. Oh, help us to receive this grace. Help us to internalize this grace. Help it to be something that goes with us from this place so that we can be transformed the people that you desire us to be. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Because Jesus didn't take a shortcut. He came here to suffer for us so that we can be brought into the presence of God and he's offering it to us this, this great gift of salvation. And after the meal, he took the cup and after blessing it, he gave it and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new covenant. In other words, we don't have to be trapped in the old ways of living anymore, but we can be the people of a new way of living. Oh, if we could just receive that. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have what's called an open table, which means you don't have to be a member of our congregation and you don't even have to be a regular uh, participant in the life of this church, but we just ask that as you come to the table that you do one thing, that you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of grace because that's what this is about. So young ones, if you wanna come with your parents and they say it's okay, then I want you to know you're not too young to receive grace. Come and receive it. And I, there might be somebody in here this morning that's walked in off the streets and you're not really sure why you're here. And maybe you were afraid that something bad was going to happen. I want you to know grace wants to meet you where you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make your life all right. Grace is being extended to you. Come and receive. God, we give ourselves to you right now. Meet us where we are at the table, your table. Sanctify us, God. Give us new life, new vision to be your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.